Welcome to the 6-8 Culture Podcast, an international community where we share stories of transformation and restoration from the inside out, based on justice, kindness, and humility. Come journey with us. I'm your host, Rob McKinley. Today's guest has spent his life pouring out his wanderings and ponderings through both pen and speech. He has a gift for finding the profound amidst the seemingly ordinary. He also has a gift of generosity in sharing his contemplations to a world starved for meaning. He is a best-selling author, having written nine books which are enjoyed by the masses, including The Rest of God, David Rise, The Recent God Walk, and my personal favorite, Spiritual Rhythm. He is a speaker, writer, storyteller, and professor with many years of pastoring behind him. He describes himself as a worshiper in spirit and truth, a man after God's own heart, and the chief of sinners. He's been a pivotal person in my own sojourn of life and has grown to be one of my dearest friends. Mark Buchanan, welcome to the 6-8 Culture Podcast. Rob, it's such a delight, and I echo that you're one of my dearest friends. Thanks, brother. It's really great to have you here. You know, you and I had met many years ago at a church that you were pastoring in Vancouver Island, and maybe we can start at the beginning. Can you share a little about who you are on a bit of a personal level? Yeah, I am. uh, For many years, 24, I was a pastor, and we met probably about halfway through my 24 years of pastoral vocation when you and I were living very close in a community and and you began to attend New Life. We met before that, but we Mm -hmm. really started to develop a friendship when you became part of that church. So 24 years of my life in pastoral work, uh, enjoyed every day of that, except the ones I didn't. And um, (laughs) and, uh, I remember hearing once, I think it was Eugene Peterson said that he'd never had two, two good pastoral days back to back. Uh, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but maybe by not much. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I really did enjoy and in many ways flourished in that work. I was surprised by that work because I never sought out pastoral ministry. I never, not as a young boy, did I dream that I'd be that. Mm-hmm. But I did felt I, I flourished in it. And one of the things I think is relevant to our conversation here is it was during that time in that Church of Vancouver Island that God woke up in me and in my wife, and then through what was happening in us, it started to happen within our church community, but woke up this real longing to do something in terms of healing historic rifts and enmities and hurts between the church and the First Nation people. Mm. And so we bumbled around for that a bit and learned a few things, mostly by bumbling around and doing the wrong things. But that work has carried on for Cheryl and I. And now uh, the last seven and a bit years, I've been a university or a seminary professor embedded in a university at Ambrose University and Seminary in Calgary. And Mm -hmm. I teach pastoral theology, but also deeply, deeply involved, both in terms of my emphases in teaching and preaching, but also in practical work with Indigenous people and communities. In fact, our church over the last year has been a small church on one of the reserves nearby. 
And so I know your theme, Rob, is about doing justly and loving mercy and walking humbly with God. And that is one of the primary ways that God has shown me that he would have me do all those three things. Yeah, yeah. And I've seen that too. And one of your comments in there, there's a tonality of cynicism when it comes to pastoring from your experiences and many years doing that. And I also have experienced firsthand myself and seen the efficacy of the pastoring position, specifically in what you've been able to bring to so many lives in that. How did you come to that point, how you stumbled into this pastoring call? Yeah, I was a little pagan. And the idea of needing Christ, certainly the idea of ever being part of a church community, let alone leading one, was as foreign an idea as anything could get. So my mother was the chaser of swamis. She, any anybody who sort of promises some kind of uh, mystical enlightenment, some kind of rapturous enlightenment through meditation or some other path, that was her guy. And my father was a skeptic on some days and an atheist on others, depending on what mood he was in. And so a completely irreligious upbringing. And any exposure I had to Christians, especially my teen years, was singularly unappealing. And I won't go into all of that, but the kind I was meeting, in no way was I thinking, wow, if I could only have that in my life, I could you know, be more like you and then everything would change. The Christians I was meeting felt to me narrow and uptight and neurotic and la la la. And so nothing was kind of waking me and saying, you should take a look at this. What happened though is my mother had a radical conversion when I was about 17. Hmm. And that was alarming to me because I just thought Jesus was the next Swami. Mm -hmm. But it seemed to bring a profound transformation in her life that that did get my attention. Mm. And then shortly after that, my brother, in my partner in crime, my fellow pagan, <laughs> uh, you know, brother and brother in arms and all of that, had a radical conversion to Christ. That upset me more than, it was more disruptive than intriguing. So I went off and did my own thing. I didn't really want anything to do with that. I, f I finally felt like I had common cause with my dad. I had a difficult relationship with my dad, but I finally felt you and I will be, you know, skeptics or atheists together here. <laughs> and my brother bought me for Christmas when I was 18, a Bible. And I thought, I was just annoyed. Like I thought you could have got me beer. Like what's this? Right. And, um, and but what I, translation was it? It was an NIV. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It would just come out. The yeah. NIV was a new thing. And I put it down on a shelf and forgot about it. I thought, I'd, this is ridiculous. A ridiculous thing to have in your house. Ridiculous gift to give a person. But I was in a relationship that was really messy. And I didn't know how to navigate it. I didn't know how to get out of it. Mm. And I, in desperation, began to read that Bible. Mm. And at first I began, like you should with any book, you start at the beginning and you know read to the end. <laughs> Genesis is a strange story if you've never read it before. Mm -hmm. uh, Exodus is strange and boring. Mm -hmm. And then you get into the law stuff and it's just thudding. It just, yes. you know, it's just grinding halt. So I phoned up my mother in the middle of Leviticus or numbers or something. And I said, your book is so dull. I can't believe, you know, anybody would get into this and meet God through it, whatever. And she said, oh, Mark, you've got to start with the, the Gospels. And I said, and what, what be they? And so she gave me some directions. And I started in the Gospel of Matthew, and I could not put it down. Hmm. 
I have to say, and this would be maybe interesting to your readers, especially your readers, readers, gosh, I live in that world too much. Your, your <laughs> listeners. audience, listeners, <laughs> those people. If a listener has grown up in church and been exposed to scripture at an early age, imagine being 21, maybe around 20, I actually picked up that Bible. So imagine being that age and you've never read it before. Mm. And you've heard some of the stories of David and Goliath and all of this, but you've never read it. And your first encounter, and you're a literary student, so you're studying literature in university. And the first encounter I had, you know, after I've sort of waded through Leviticus or whatever, was the Gospels. That's how I meet in Christ. Mm. I'm telling you, what happened for me, Rob, is what later C.S. Lewis gave me language for. I knew he was a liar, he was a lunatic, or he's Lord. Right. I knew there was no middle ground. I knew mm. that there's no way I could take this easy position that he was an interesting historical personage, or he was a great teacher, or any of that. I knew as I knew as I knew without anybody telling me, it was mm. again years later that I would read Lewis and that trilemma that he poses. But I knew that I either had to go all in or get far away. Mm-hmm. And so I wrestled with that. And anyhow, as you might have guessed, I went all in. <laughs> so it was really a gradual process for you. There wasn't one kind of epiphany or light or individual person that came and no. spoke wisdom into you. And No, I, w- I wish there was, because I'd love to sort of shake their hand and, and wait, you know, if they're in heaven to kind of embrace them. And partly that's a reflection I understand better now than I did then of my personality. I'm a soloist. Mm. I really got to wrestle this thing out alone. And if somebody's trying to put undue pressure on me, that makes me bridle and I'll start to dig my heels in for no good reason other than I don't want to be pressured. Mm. So all of you listeners who are trying to sell me a car or something, take heed. The way to get me not to do it is try to pressure me. (laughs) I think a lot of people can resonate with that approach and how they're wired. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's really actually been very, very helpful because I hate that kind of pressure tactics. I would not use it on another person. I would not try to sort of bully them or strong arm them or give them a false sense of urgency or even a real sense of urgency around coming to faith in Christ, because I want to respect the process that I myself experienced, which is it took months and months to really wrestle this thing through and make this decision that I knew was going to be momentous and change everything. Hmm. You know, the, the Puritans used to have what they call the anxious seat. And if somebody came to them and said, I wanted to come into faith and can you lead me? A good Puritan minister would say, no, you, you got to really count the cost of this. Hmm. And so you need to sit in the anxious seat. You need to work it out and take as long as you need to work it out. Because once you cross that line, you're, there's no going back. Turning over, Mark, you've traveled to many a land. We've both seen a wide variety of cultures with challenges and triumphs in many global South countries. Can you share overseas trips that you've had based on these themes of justice, kindness, and humility that have really impacted you? I would love to, Robin. Thank you. You'd actually prepared me for this. I went for a long walk and thought about various places I've been in the world. I've been in all the continents except Antarctica and in many, many countries and explored very many cultures. And part of the interesting thing is because most of those have been connected with some form of ministry, 
I haven't been in the tourist places. I haven't been staying in the exotic accommodations. I haven't been eating the fancy food. It's local stuff. Mm -hmm. My very first mission trip was in 1991 to Uganda in uh, East Africa. Long story how we ended up there. I was just still a pup. I was just in my 30s. My son, who's now nearly 30, had just been born. And I took a group of 18 and 19 year olds and took them into the jungles of Uganda. I had no idea uh, what I was doing and how dangerous all of this was. It was just uh, on the other side of the Obote crisis, who was the crazy man who followed the crazy man Idi Amin. And the country was still in profound disruption, turmoil, poverty, and it was a very dangerous place to be. What I uh, saw in the Christians on the ground in these incredible poverty, I know that Uganda's made some extraordinary social gains uh, in terms of improvement of standard of living and all that, but it was a profoundly broken country in 1991. Mm-hmm. And two things stand out. They don't quite line up with those big three themes of justice, kindness, and humility. But what strikes me as I think back is gratitude. Mm. I had never seen poverty up close until that point. I had taken an earlier trip a couple years before into Asia and had been in parts of Thailand and seen some pretty dramatic poverty, but not at this level. I, I was stunned by it and often overwhelmed by it and didn't quite know how to cope with it. I myself am a fairly young man at that point. Mm-hmm. And what stands out all these years later is the unbelievable levels of gratitude that I met up with in the Christian folks. And one story that actually changed my life, Rob, I was at a worship service. It was out in the jungle. Uh, it was open air. We had these rough hewn wood benches. It was scraps of metal that made up for the roof of the thing on poles that they'd hewed down from trees in the forest. They had old instruments. They had these ancient guitar strings that they were nursing like a failing grandmother unless they broke. And just kind of an assortment of handmade instruments that they'd make a joyful noise on the Lord with. But there was such rapturous joy in the worship of this community. And this one night I was miserable for some reason. And I think it had to do with we'd been eating cornbread and beans too, too many nights in a row or something. And I just... <laughs> you know, was was craving a hamburger. And I was really just self-pitying. And so there's this rousing worship service going on. And the pastor gets up in the middle of it and he asks if anyone has a testimony. And everybody but me has one. They all want to get up and give their testimony. Finally, this he picks this beautiful woman who's dancing and singing her way up to the front to come and give her testimony. And she gets up and she says, oh, I do, you know, I'm so, I love Jesus so much. I'm so thankful for Jesus. I don't even know where to begin. Hmm. And everyone's saying, begin there, begin there. (laughs) Oh, I don't know where to begin. There's so many things in my Jesus has done for me. I'm so grateful. And they're just begin there, sister, begin there. So she says, okay, uh, three months ago, I started praying for shoes. And look, and she lifts up her foot and and she's just got ordinary pair of loafers on. My God has given me shoes. I was, even now, I'm just feeling the emotion. I was pierced, Rob. Hmm. I was pierced by the spirit of God. I was crushed. And and when I got up, I was a different guy. I had never, ever prayed for shoes. Mm-hmm. Here's the first of it. I had lots and had never given thanks for them. And something about that altered something in me. 
And I realized, oh my goodness, I'm going home in a few weeks or whatever. I can eat whatever I want. I'm going to open several closets any given day and pick my shoes. (laughs) I don't have to pray for them. And I made a choice at that moment that I was going to, part of justice, I guess, is rather than living in a, a place of entitlement and demand and exploitation, mm. to walk in a place of deep, deep gratitude. So honestly, that's been a ground theme for my life. It started in Uganda in 1991. Wow. The whole concept of gratitude is so intertwined with the themes of justice and mercy and humility. As you're talking, I was just reflecting on the correlation of giving out of one's excess or just giving out of one's means and the tie-in of joy when we give of what we don't even really have. There's no excess, but we're sharing the meager means that we do have. There's an indescribable joy associated with that that just kindles us on fire. Whereas when we give out of our excess, there's no sacrifice, I guess, right? That's that's what I'm trying to say. Well, you think about the word Eucharist and the Greek, the root is charis, which is thankfulness, it's gift, and it's joy or thankfulness. So thankfulness, gift, and joy. And then Eucharist becomes the word for the sacrifice of Christ, right, that we celebrate. Mm. You are so right that you know, I, when, when you're talking about the sacrifice is actually the point where we begin to f- experience something of the heart of God, giving out of our own place of struggle rather than, you know, from our excess. Mm. I think of the widow's might, you know, all these rich people throwing stuff in to the thing. Jesus, it's interesting that Jesus should sit and watch the collection that Sunday, right? <laughs> that church, right? He's watching, you know, <laughs> right. in. I guess a nerve wracking thought, right? <laughs> He's watching to see what you're going to throw in there. And I've, I've never looked at it that way. That's, oh, that's yeah. quite like a key. Like, wow, you know, where, where's <laughs> Jesus at church? You know, like he's perching, you know, watching. Oh, what did Buchanan do today? <laughs> so, uh, you know, she, she, it's just copper coins she's throwing in, right? They, they, everyone else giving out of their wealth, big amounts, out of their wealth, out of their excess, out of their abundance. And she gives a few, but it's everything she has to live on. And Jesus says, actually, I think it fundamentally, Jesus says, that's what I look, that's, you know, I, I, if I'm looking for a picture of my own self-given in the crowd, it's her. Hmm. And so I think you're absolutely right. I don't know if you can separate out generosity, gratitude, all of that from this life of beginning to see, is there other ways, is there creative ways? Uh, let me say this. I, I think that people become very creative in how to make money. I wish they were as creative in how to give it. There's some food for thought. (laughs) We're listening to author and professor Mark Buchanan. Stay tuned as Mark shares more on his world travels and how these experiences have impacted not only his work, but have given him deeper intention into living out a life of justice, kindness, and humility. That was Africa. So I'm going to take you now to Bolivia, where we've both been. Those are two trips, 2010 and 2012. Mm -hmm. And what really stands out of many, many beautiful and difficult things in my two trips to Bolivia is I was so stunned by the industriousness of the people. Again, this Mm -hmm. isn't quite lining up with your grand themes, but I think we can tie that in. 
And you know exactly what I'm talking about. This oppressed, marginalized, uh, we were especially Mira and Quechua people. So mm-hmm. they're like the indigenous people of the land. If you look at the history of Bolivia, they were the ones colonized and then suffered under colonial rule, pushed to the edges, made into servant and slave class, land taken away from them. It, very similar story in some ways to our colonial history yeah. in Canada. And what what stunned me is this is a hardworking people. So I think, and you've been there in, for instance, in Cochabamba or El La Paz, these these glorious markets and these places that you go into, and the mounds and mounds of everything, the turnips, the carrots, the the cabbages, uh, the clothing, beautiful handcrafted uh, wares, clothing and hats, and all of that that's being made in these places. And this sort of bustling quality to mm-hmm. the indigenous community and folks of that land, often it's hand to mouth. It's a subsistence existence. So it's not like they're big entrepreneurs, tycoons, moguls, making hand over fist money and driving away in the fleet of Mercedes. They are carting their stuff in still, mm-hmm. you know, and, or in their old rickety car often in their traditional garb, the you know women in the bowler hats and the big skirts and all those sorts of things. Cholitas. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it just stunned me time after time. This isn't a one-off. Everywhere I went in that country or that part of the country saw this incredible resourcefulness and industriousness. And I thought, you know, one of the ways, again, around this theme of walking with God in humility, loving mercy and doing justly, is this kind of figuring a way into the sort of economic prosperity of a land that's not exploitative, that doesn't participate in the structures of exploitation, that actually is really tied closely to the land. And as you know, that most of the Amara and Kichwa people are farmers, love the land, steward the land, care for the land, bring their harvest off the land, live off the land. Their, their own food is coming, taking that and selling it in these markets that they can get to and bring it fresh to. You know, when I look at the prophets, there is such a tight, intimate link between justice and righteousness and actually God bringing about some economic prosperity that's not hegemonic, not oppressive, not imperialistic in a way that the little guy always gets yeah. crushed. Yeah. And so I took enormous hope mm. from that example of this industriousness, this hard work, this perseverance of the people and finding and making a way in a culture. And there's enough exploitation of that kind of rich, small percentage who's desperately or ridiculously wealthy in that country from say the silver reserves that are sold now for portable devices and whatnot and the people who actually inhabit the land for a long time who are still desperately poor but that does stand out to me because i've seen in other contexts where that kind of oppressive system has so flattened the people so beat them down in some ways, it's a story in Canada with our Indigenous people that there's been uh, systemic things in place that have so broken the resourcefulness and kind of industriousness of, a, of an entire people group Yeah, that it's just very hard to kind of really find that motivation to say, I'm going to go participate in any way I can in the economy. We don't have the market structures for it anyhow, but that it did impress me. When I walk alongside my indigenous friends, one of the things we explore is what are the things that are already 
happening here that we could figure out a way to actually make this part of your prospering. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Mark. Strangely enough, yesterday, coming up on my Facebook memories was a day that I had spent in El Alto, which is kind of part of the greater La Paz yeah, area. <laughs> yeah, where the where the plains west. <laughs> it, it, it is, and there, El Alto's a, got a population of about a million people looking down over La Paz. And my heart broke that day, three years ago yesterday. It was probably one of the most trying and impacting days I've ever had in any of my travels anywhere. We did a partnership with the organization I used to work for and IJM and the Global Leadership Summit people. And we went with IJM and we toured around. There was another indigenous group in El Alto called Sutisana. And what they do is they rescue trapped women in the sex trade that are being exploited and rescue them from brothels. They actually go in and they make friends and acquaintances with the pimps and the people who run Mm. the brothels. And some of them are exploited as well. But as we were walking around, we walked by a couple of these buildings and they looked like mausoleums. They were just gothically horrific. They had these tiny little holes for breathing. There were no windows made out of stone and clay. And every Friday night at 6 p.m., just hordes of men line up blocks and blocks and blocks to come into these brothels. And in El Alto, which is a very impoverished section of La Paz in the greater El Alto area there, they charge $2.25 for a trick with one of these women. And these women are on the low end of the totem pole, as they would say, as far as uh, where they are in the hierarchy of prostitution. One thing I noticed is that the darkness and the light in that area are so brightly contrasted. So you see the horror and the ugly underbelly and depravity of humanity, but you also see the incredible opportunity for redemption and brightness and letting the light shine into those cracks. And they have a statue of Jesus overlooking La Paz, but his back is facing El Alto. And the joke is that even Jesus has turned his back on El Alto. (laughs) And there just needs to be such great redemption in that place where there's so many shadows and so much darkness that the light shines through. And it reminds me, in one of your books, you had written about an experience of a statue of Christ out in Cochabamba. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, Thanks for that description. That's a perfect description of El Alto. Mm. The darkness and light, I've experienced it in similarly with this kind of stark exposure to both in that town. Yeah, Cochabamba is in the central uh, lower part of... Uh, lower both in terms of elevation in terms of uh, southerly kind of orientation in Bolivia, central part, lovely, beautiful city with its own problems. To my surprise, when I visited there, I did not know before I got there that there is a statue of Jesus that is virtually a replica of Christ's Redeemer statue that Mm we were so famous from Rio de Janeiro. Uh, This is called the Christos de la Concordia, the Christ of unity. He's a meter taller than the one in Rio which is interesting all its own little bit of you know, competition going on there. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the story is, I was in that town both in 2010 and 2012. So 2010, I was with a mutual friend. I think you've actually interviewed Dwayne for this program, haven't you? I, I haven't, but he's on the, he's okay, on the, he's on the list. So, 
So a mutual friend, Dwayne, uh, was living in Cochabamba in 2010. We go up to look at this actual glorious statue who stands high over on a ridge above this city of Cochabamba, arms reached out, both cruciform and welcoming. Uh, come unto me, <laughs> this, this I do for you. Uh, beautiful white alabaster, whatever it's made of. And uh, so we go up to uh, up the switchbacks to this thing to go stand at the base of this. And while we're there, uh, Dwayne says to me, do you want to go in Jesus? And I'm like, yeah, this is, of course, <laughs> I've waited my whole life for this. <laughs> and uh, to my great disappointment, Jesus is locked. Uh, there's a big padlock. And I and I honestly considered about breaking the roof, but but anyhow, we didn't do any criminal thing. And I went down very, very you know, discouraged that I could not go inside Jesus. It. <laughs> Two years later, I'm back in that town, back with Dwayne. We go back up, and this time Jesus is open. And the way they've designed it, there's just these spiraling stairs, metal stairs going up and up all, all the way to almost the very head of Jesus. And every 10 feet or so, there's a scaffolding of planks that you stand on. And in the body of Jesus, both facing forward and facing behind are little portholes about face size that you can look out at the surrounding countryside from the body of Jesus. So I went in, up and up I went, one platform, next platform. Finally, I get to the very final platform, which is right at the level of Jesus' heart. And I went and I looked out the two portholes out the back over into a deep valley on that side, went and looked at another porthole looking at the right hand side. And then the last I stood and I looked out what would be the heart of Jesus from the left hand side. And to my astonishment, anticipated this coming every level, but the only place you get the entire view of all of Cochabamba is when you're standing at that place looking out through the heart mm -hmm. of Jesus. And I, I mean, I almost fell over with, with the revelatory power of it, Rob, that uh, I realized, I mean, it was, it was like the story I told you earlier about the, the shoes in Uganda. This was the heart of Jesus in Cochabamba. And the thing that the Lord spoke to me is, this is, this is my, my desire for you, my will for you. You come further in, higher up. You immerse your life in me. You get to the place where you actually begin to see everything, everything every one, every situation from my heart. And so it was, again, one of those things that Mark Buchanan, who stood up to the, <laughs> the window or the little hole and looked out, the Mark Buchanan who stepped away, something had, had shifted deep in me. Wow. And that experience that you had, that you came back, you told me about, and you wrote about in one of your books, I forget which one, Your Church is Too Safe. I don't remember either me, which book. <laughs> fortunately, back in 2017, I also was able to go to Cochabamba and experience a similar thing. And it was absolutely overwhelming, an experience yeah. that words can't really put justice to. Yeah. Very much. Yeah. It's actually the book I remembered. It's Your Church is Too Safe. Okay. 2012. Yeah right after this experience. Any other journeys internationally before we Yeah, let, let me, let me uh, one I had this year, if you can believe it, it was early, it was February, 2020. We were watching the stalking horse of coronavirus mm -hmm. across the planet. My wife and I spent two weeks in Kalimantan, northern part of that big landmass is called Borneo. 
And a, a story where a very last minute it was put together. I, I was heading out into international trip and very last minute Mission Aviation Fellowship said we desperately, you know, I was like last choice. <laughs> uh, or I think it was the only choice, but it was sort of like they had not planned and, and suddenly they were coming up on a deadline. They needed somebody to, to come and speak at a retreat. And so it worked out. We went there and spent a wonderful couple of weeks with these good, good folks working in this country that predominantly Muslim, a lot of the, the conveniences that they would have had, most of are Canadian, American, some Brits and whatnot, Australian, et cetera. All of that, they've sort of had to forsake to be part of this work. Hmm. What struck me there is the spirit of compassion and generosity, which is very much ties in with your big themes. Yeah. And here's particularly, I had conversation after conversation with these incredible pilots and the people on the ground who, who kind of maintain the planes and do all the organization. These people are uber competent. Mm -hmm. um, these pilots are some of the best in the world. They're flying into some of the most tricky situations, landing on airstrips that are not airstrips. You have to kind of dodge the water buffalo as you're you know, going up or coming down. <laughs> You're finding that little tiny eye of the needle in these massive cumulus clouds over these massive mountains and needling, you know, threading down through that to pin a landing on, again, something that you have very little margin of error for. Uh, they're going in there to rescue lives. It's evac stuff for people who have had injuries or sicknesses or whatnot. I actually got to take part, Cheryl and I, in an evac of one person who had a head injury from a motorcycle accident way out in one of the villages. And then we flew into other villages and brought back somebody who had mysteriously fallen ill. Who knows, might have been COVID. We didn't, you know, at this point, wow. that was right at the edge of that. Anyhow, so conversation after conversation with these pilots, all of them could make bags of money if they simply went and flew for an airline. They're at that level of competency. The people who fix the planes, bags of money if they just went and fixed it for an airline. All the people on the ground who are doing all the work have skills that would easily net them jobs that they would live the kind of Western lives that right. we apparently all aspire to. <laughs> They've chosen a different path. They've chosen it deliberately. They keep choosing it over and over because many of them get offers why don't you come? This is a pre-COVID, mind you. You know, why don't you come and fly for us, work for us? And what I, was stunning to me is it didn't seem like it was, you know, they're gritting their teeth, clenching their fists, embittered about if only they could pay me more or whatever. These guys, like the guy that we flew in to do these two evacs, he had to take out the seats from his plane in order to make room for these. One we knew we were flying in, the other came while we were in the air. So we, we had to kind of dump out the seats. He had to fly in after us to go fetch a seat and somebody we had to leave on the ground. And it turned out as he was in the air going back, another crisis happened. I have never seen so much joy in the work that he got to do in the moment he's finding it fulfilling. Wow, yeah. And I reflected a lot about this, if you lose your life for me, you're going to really find it. And this is a group, amazing people, beautiful people, fun people, generous people, kind people, uh, not an uptight bunch of people. Yeah. Great to spend a couple weeks with them. Great to kind of sit at the poolside with them and talk life. Mm. Great to come in the morning and, and sit down and see one of them and, and have breakfast with them and just, who are you and what do you do? Gracious, gracious people. And yet all of them could be making the big bucks and instead of chosen these fairly marginal salaries, yeah. 
living in this place with not any of the luxuries or amenities that you and I enjoy, even in, with our so-called simple lifestyles. And I again thought, wow, love mercy, do justly, walk humbly with God. There's a picture of it. Yeah, that's humility encompassing all those other things. Yeah. The, the power of living in the present and that, that joy that you have. Thank you for sharing that lesson. Well, that was part one of our interview with best-selling author Mark Buchanan. Join us for part two, where Mark shares on some useful speaking and writing techniques. He'll also give insight into some of his newest books and what's behind them, as well as commentary on culture and self-disclosure of his own journey in justice, kindness, and humility. Thanks for sharing your time with the 6-8 Culture Podcast, where we share stories of personal transformation that are making our world a more just, kind, and humble place. Join us for our next session of Impacting Stories with 6-8 Culture. This is Rob McKinley signing out with a reminder for us all to act justly, to be kind, and to walk humbly.